Hi, I'm Annie. I'm Zoya, and this is Cortado Cafe. So basically, the form of this podcast is conversational and meant to be open for others to listen in on our freeform chats. Uh, so Annie and I are both from New York, and we're both college students. Um, I'm pre-med, and I'm double majoring in neuroscience and Hispanic studies. Mm-hmm. And my major is STS, which stands for Science, Technology, and Society. So that's basically the end of our intro. Hopefully you guys are going to get to know us better as the podcast continues. And today we're going to talk about something that means a lot to the both of us. So I'll be starting off by talking about my thesis. So this is my senior thesis, and um, it'll be on fertility and menstrual tracking apps. Um, I think it's super interesting. I'm always asking Annie about her thesis. I think it just is super relevant to today's society. Thanks. (laughs) It really is quite, um, yeah, relevant to... uh, to us right now. And so what I'm looking at is, like I said earlier, fertility and menstrual apps. And I'm looking at them through the greater lens of femtech, which is a very recent theoretical term that refers to technology um, made for women. And this includes various products and services. Um, But what interested me the most about these apps is that They um, show a lot about um, how we think about women in society and especially in technology. Um, So one of the chapters that I'm focusing on right now is about what the developers are thinking about when they're making these apps. And I'm trying to reveal the kinds of assumptions they make uh, for the users of these apps. And this can include um, who their users are, Um, and the kinds of things like their sexuality, what their desires are when it comes to family planning, their employment status, and education level. Um, What do you think developers are, you know, usually thinking? Who are they usually targeting? Mm -hmm. That's a really good question. So I think what I found was that most of these developers are thinking in terms of heterosexual women who have a partner who's male and who can get them pregnant, Um, and they have a decent education level and are well-educated enough that they can um, understandably use the app to um, either make themselves pregnant or... um, I'm sorry, I just thought that was really funny (laughs) phrasing. It is. But continue. Yes. So I think there's something... There are quite a few things that are problematic about these kinds of apps, um, and I thought I would talk about them because I think millions of women are using these apps and and not just women but people who do menstruate and so we have to think about um, the connection between user and developers so most users are seeing them as um, ways to not get pregnant so I'll bring out a case study so this is more clear to everyone Mm -hmm. natural cycles is an app that um, was released a couple years ago, but it's become very popular, and its main purpose is to um, to work as a natural contraceptive in the sense that you use a um, basal body thermometer, um, which is just a thermometer to track your body temperature and your past menstrual cycles to see when you're fertile or infertile, in the sense that you just know when you can have sex or not have sex in order to... Um, you know, get pregnant or not be pregnant. It's a very, like, <laughs> dichotomous um, decision you make. And the problem with this app is that uh, it was recently approved by the FDA, um, the Federal Drug Administration, um, as a natural contraceptive. That's really interesting to me um, because I know the FDA is really tough in general. And in my bio class, we're talking about how even things like stem cell therapies that are just so... 
um, commonly in use are not FDA approved yet. Mm-hmm. So I think it's really interesting that the FDA is getting involved um, in femtech, and I think that's really important. Right. Yeah. So it is. It is important. And so um, the assumption is that most people are now using it as a contraceptive and not to get pregnant because it's marketed that way. Um, but I found that a lot of the developers, especially the natural cycles developers, they have explicitly stated that their app is for couples who want to conceive soon. So just the, the fact that those two things are mismatched is um, very troubling for users. And we also see this mismatch in the direct-to-consumer advertising. So what I found um, just scrolling through Instagram is that <laughs> natural cycles sponsors Semi-famous Instagram bloggers, <laughs> if you can call them bloggers. Or are they just posters? Like <laughs> lifestyle influencers, maybe? Yeah, precisely. Yeah. So the people who can influence other people's lives. Wait, but this yeah. is, sorry, just to go back to what you said for a second. That's so interesting to me that it's, a pr- so you're saying the FDA approved it as a contraceptive, mm-hmm. even though that's not what the technology is marketing itself as? Mm-hmm. Yes. I wonder how the FDA did that. That's yeah, kind of wild. It is. So that is that that's going to be the next thing that I'll look at. Mm-hmm. So I haven't written that chapter yet. But um, yeah, so back to Instagram. Yeah. Like you said, <laughs> these lifestyle influencers. What a life. What a life indeed. <laughs> so um, it's a fairly common practice to capitalize on these influencers because they have been able to cultivate parasocial relationships with their um, audiences. Mm-hmm. And um, I think a lot of people in marketing understand that the best way to sell something to someone is through using a trusted figure. Right. And a lot of these um, beautiful, I'm just saying that as like a fact, beautiful influencers <laughs> have um, an audience who trusts them, like in terms of their lifestyle choices That's and so what their goals are. And so they kind of aspire to um, be the person that they're looking at. So um, yeah, so precisely the fact that these two things are mismatched, does the FDA even know and is aware of these advertising strategies? Um, and then the second, or rather another feature that is also questioned to me is if these apps are, if they're using entirely new technology to um, be contraceptives or if they're just permutations of older techniques Mm -hmm. because I've talked to a lot of older folks older meaning like in their 50s and 60s and they are fully aware of like fertility awareness um to them like they might have used something called the rhythm method which is just tracking your um, menstrual cycle um and just estimating when you can um have sex to get pregnant or not um and so I think the ultimate problem of calling these kinds of apps natural contraceptives is that they're viewed to supplant hormonal birth control. Mm, I see. So, you know, they're meant to, they're seen to supersede and replace, essentially, hormonal birth control. And there's so many good things about, this is just my viewpoint, but (laughs) there are many good things about hormonal birth control. And one of the main things is that you can separate um, the act of reproduction and sex. So a lot of women can enjoy their sexuality um, by using birth control. And so a lot of the issues then are with these research articles that are um, being written by companies like Natural Cycles that see their fertility apps as competing with hormonal birth control. And their studies don't, they 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 don't have that comparison in their trials. So that that is also an issue, like a scientific issue. Um, 
So that's something that I, I was wondering about. Um, you know, obviously it's FDA approved and all of that, but how has the science worked and how have they, like, you know, every every person's body, every person's menstrual, menstrual cycle, all of that is so different. Mm-hmm. So how can they market it as a contraceptive? Like, do the algorithms, like, differ for every person? Right. That's a really good question, but the thing is, like, we like we can't peer review, and I know that that's a huge thing for a lot of research scientists mm-hmm. because the algorithm for natural cycles and for other apps is um, a proprietary algorithm. So they own everything, and they can't show it to the public. And so reviewing how really efficacious it is is very difficult. Interesting. Yes. Especially because, like, in my neuro and bio classes lately we've been talking about how some of the really big issues in science these days um, are as the knowledge gets more and more specialized and as people get more and more concerned about you know the number of publications that they have as opposed to just trying to stick to you know replicating results people have just been forging ahead without working to replicate results because Mm -hmm. it's also a lot harder to get funding if you're just going to repeat someone's study even though that's a really crucial part of science and so something that they've been finding recently is a lot of the really interesting research that's been showcased um, has either not been replicated or some people will try and redo those studies and they won't get the same results. Mm-hmm. Um, but no one's really been addressing it. Like, there's been a lot of talk, but so far nothing has really been done right. to fix that. Right. Yeah, that's all very relevant. And I'm wondering if you want to turn to um, the thing that you observed last week. Um, right. Yeah. So... So Annie and I were saying how, like, you know, this this podcast is freeform, um, and it's just going to reflect a lot of the things that we talk about, and this actually ref- is going to be about um, the conversation that we had at dinner yesterday night after boxing. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> Fun fact. Annie and I do boxing a few times a week, and we usually get dinner together after. Yes. Um, but anyway, so I was just telling Annie about something that happened in my clinical psychology class the other day. So basically, we're sitting in class, and we're talking about the whole concept of involuntary commitment uh, into psychiatric hospitals, particularly in the concept or in the um, in the realm of criminal cases. Mm-hmm. And of course, there are a lot of ethical issues that come up. Um, but something that our professor asked us was, she was saying, why do you think there's such a difference between the way that the government is trying to make these laws and then the scientific research that's going alongside it? And someone in the class raised their hand and just said, well, the government only has one goal, and they see things in black and white, and they want clear rules, which is, you know, it's fair. Um, But then she went on to say, science, on the other hand, is objective. And so they're just doing everything in their power to find all of the probabilities. Mm -hmm. And that really, really frustrated me because... As a student of science, I think one of the biggest things that I have learned is science is not objective. Um, it's really, really unfortunate, but, you know, just think about all of the studies that are that are being funded. Like, the politics totally plays into it. Mm-hmm. Um, something that was really interesting that's, you know, kind of related, kind of unrelated, is um, in the past few years there have been a lot of studies on looking at the brains of people who are queer, um, a lot of studies on homosexuality. Right. Um, you know, comparing, like, hippocampal sizes, things like that. And I was talking to my uncle about it, and at first I was like, oh, I guess this is interesting that they're getting genetic backing to show that, you know, queer sexuality is real. Mm-hmm. Um, and my uncle turned to me and he was like, but is this the kind of society you want to be living in where the only way that we're going to accept people's sexuality is by having genetic evidence? 
um, that to, to almost to make it okay. And they thought that was really interesting. And I was thinking about it. And there are so many political motivations for that kind of research, because in terms of gay marriage laws, all of those things, and just the fact that science is, is not objective. And then, like I said, there's the whole issue with replications these days. Right. Um, there's so much p-hacking that goes on. Can you and, explain p-hacking oh, yes. to our audience? So a lot of times um, scientists will do their research. And, and so one of the ethical codes of research is you have a set sample size, you have a set, I'm going to do this, that statistical analysis, and whatever happens, happens, whether it's significant or not. Mm-hmm. But these days, everybody wants significance because otherwise their papers won't really get published. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times what people will do is they will, after the fact, try other statistical tests or, you know, remove quote-unquote outliers. And a lot of times that can make a really big like difference in terms of significance and push things that originally were not significant into the area of significance. Um, and a lot of people think that that's one of the reasons why no one can really replicate each other's data anymore. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It was just really, you know, I understand how a lot of people who don't come into contact with science on their everyday basis might have the idea that, oh, science is very rational. Um, but I just think it's a really dangerous perspective to have if you truly believe that science is objective Mm -hmm. because so much plays into it. And I think we should all just be very wary and appreciative of that fact. Yeah, no, I was talking about how this fits really well with STS because the field of my study was built off of the idea that, you know, scientists might not be reflective enough uh, of the work that they're doing. Like individually, I think they might have some sense of understanding how their daily, um, like laboratory routines are not you know, they're following certain standards and protocols, but in the end, like, it's, it's like what Zoya said, a very political activity. And so I think the the benefits of having this, like, reflex reflexivity um, is that you, I guess, you, you are able to see through the practices of science um, without totally undermining your trust in it, which is a very um, special thing. I think like STS, we like to use the word tension. So it's a really good thing to hold those things in tension, to understand that, you know, science isn't fully objective, but the practices, um, you know, aren't, you know, they're not objective, but like the things that we derive from it, the facts and maybe just like certain principles and things that we've discovered um, are useful and they're, and they're meaningful to us in society. And they do like reflect into, or rather they manifest into useful technologies later on. I totally agree. Like, none of this is to say that you shouldn't trust the studies that you're reading, but more Mm -hmm. just to think of them in a larger context. Right. Yeah, so that's really, it's really important for the both of us, Mm -hmm. um, this kind of topic, especially for, like, young budding scientists, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, and the fact that someone in my clinical psychology class said this, you know, everybody in that class is either a a bio major or a psych major or a Mm -hmm. neuro major, and we're pretty much all juniors and seniors, so, you know, I hope that every single one of us in the room before we graduate kind of come to this realization. Um, (laughs) It's hard, though, you know. Yeah. Um, But I think this kind of ties into... So, okay, this morning, fun fact, Mm -hmm. um, I haven't told Annie this either, so I guess everyone's (laughs) learning about me. (laughs) New to all of us. But this morning, I was getting coffee with my old organic chemistry professor, um, old as in 
I had him last year. Previously, not, <laughs> not that he's not old. that he's old. Although we do have a running joke that he acts like he's seventy, which oh. he is not. <laughs> um, anyway, <laughs> so we were just talking this morning, and I was telling him how some someone that I really admire in the field is Siddhartha Mukherjee. Mm-hmm. So basically, he is this guy who started off doing cancer research. He became a physician, and. Now he writes for The New Yorker. He, you know, is an occasional columnist for The Times. Um, He's written a few books. But one of my favorite things about him is that a lot of times, yeah, he does write about science, but a lot of times he doesn't. Um, Recently, he wrote a piece on his father's death and how that affected him. Um, And it wasn't clinical at all. And I think it's really important that, like, all of these different fields are converging. Mm -hmm. Just the concept that, as a scientist, you should be able to write and not just in very specific, specialized terminology about your field, but you should be able to communicate to to people. And I think the fact that he's kind of finding that intersection between literary writing and and scientific writing is super cool. Mm -hmm. And I was talking to Annie about how I think it's super cool that um, a lot of fields are becoming just more multidisciplinary and encouraging this kind of thinking of your field, but also outside of your field at the same time. I guess holding them in tension, as you said. <laughs> exactly. Um, you said that neuroscience is becoming more multidisciplinary, correct? Yes. Actually, in our college, um, it's officially going to become a multidisciplinary major next year, which I'm very happy about. Yay. It's amazing. <laughs> no, but I, I, I agree with you. I think it's very cool that these... Um, whether they're physicians or, or medical researchers or just really high up in their field, that they're, you know, enjoying a more, uh, I, I don't want to say creative because their own work can be creative, mm-hmm. but perhaps just more art- artistic way of um, expressing who they are as people is really cool too. Especially because mm-hmm. I genuinely believe that science is a form of art, and I think the fact that people tend to separate the two a lot right. is... It's sad, and it, it shouldn't be that way. Yeah. You know, if you think about someone like Santiago Ramon Icajal, who's one <laughs> of the fathers of modern neuroscience, you know, he's yeah. this guy who, he did all of this research on how this is what neurons look like, this is their structure, and he had no clue. This was so long ago. But he knew, and, and it, this is how neurons are structured. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he did all of these beautiful drawings of all of his hypotheses, and they're so beautiful. They're such just beautiful works of yeah. art that they're on display in, in museums in Madrid because that's where he's from. Um, NYU even took some of the p- photos on loan um, this past year, yeah. and I went to the exhibit. And it was just, <laughs> it was incredible. And yeah. I think so many people were there who were not only interested in the science or just the art, but like in that intersection. Mm-hmm. One thing that I love about you is that you will show me pictures of, of neurons. <laughs> When we're just hanging out, you're like, hey, look at this picture of a neuron. Isn't it pretty? <laughs> yeah. I feel a little bit called out. I actually yeah. um, was telling Annie about this right right before we started mm-hmm. shooting, or, or not right. shooting, recording, I Re- guess. Um, but yeah, in my neuro class at the moment, we've been doing a lot of fun work with mice brains. Um, and so basically we ran a bunch of behavioral testing on mice, and then we basically obtained their, their brains and did different kinds of staining. Um, and we've been looking at sections of their brain, and it's just so pretty. Like, mm-hmm. one of the scenes is Cressel Violet, and the way that the <laughs> neurons come out, I don't know, you know? Yeah. It's pretty. It's pretty. Um, I remember you saying something about stubby neurons. The, 
the it just blew spines. my mind. Spines, spines. Okay, can you explain this? Because it actually blew my mind when she said this. My mouth was open for a while. Um, I was just shocked. Anyway, go ahead. Okay, anyone who's in my neuro class right now would be like, oh my god, I can't believe she's doing this. But anyway, <laughs> um, so our professor is really interested in dendritic spines. So essentially, crash course on neurons. Um, Love it. There are um, there are three basic parts of a neuron. There's mm-hmm. the cell soma, which is the body of the cell. There's the dendrites, and there's the axon. Uh, and on the dendrite, there are different almost structures that protrude from the dendrite called dendritic spines. And so there are a lot of theories on all of the different parts of the neurons and how they work, et cetera, et cetera. But specifically in relation to these dendritic spines, um, as we know today, the current theory is that these spines are physical representations of our memory. And so there are three big kinds of spines. There's stubby spines, there are mushroom spines, and there are long, skinny spines. I did not make up the names. Don't laugh at me, Annie. I won't. Um, but the theory is that when you form a memory, when you learn something, it forms as a long, skinny spine on a dendrite. And, you know, there's a lot of things called synaptic pruning, meaning spines are constantly being formed and degraded, etc. And so when you form a long, skinny spine, if you recall this memory several times, you're reconsolidating it. And through the process of reconsolidation, this long, skinny spine will turn into a mushroom or a stubby spine. And those are pruned a lot less. You know, they go away a lot less. And it just, yeah, it just blows my mind, too, the fact that whenever I'm showing Annie these pictures of neurons... In theory, we are looking at memories, at mm-hmm. things that we've learned and acquired, and there are so many neurons in our brain, and to just see in one cell the amount of dendritic spines, it's mind-blowing. It really is. We've just been given the warning <laughs> that it's like we're like almost at 25 minutes, and our goal was to make our podcast like 25 20 minutes. minutes. Yeah. yeah, so I think we're, we're good. We could sum up maybe... Is there anything else we want to say to our audience? Just just thanks for listening. <laughs> Forgive us for not being the most eloquent. It's our first podcast. <laughs> Hopefully we'll improve, but you'll have yes. to stay tuned to see. Yes, <laughs> you'll have to be our friends. <laughs> Honestly, realistically, it's probably just our friends who are going to be listening yeah. to this. So thank you so much. We thank love you. Thank you, guys. Yes. We, we really do love you. Yeah. Um, I think that's all for now. So I don't know. I guess hopefully next time we'll have something even more interesting, potentially. Potentially to say? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Anyway. This is the end of Chai Chats. Thank you. Bye. Bye.